last time. Uh, if you got your questions when we handed them out last November, last year, uh, on, on the front, and then I put some extras on the table, is a copy of the psalm that we're going to be teaching this morning. And the reason that I chose this psalm, and this is this way my mind works. Last summer I was making up uh, the schedule for 2017 and 18, and I saw that the first Tuesday in January was January 2nd, and I thought, you know, there might not be a lot of people there, and it also might be icy or snowy. So I was studying Hebrews at the time, and Hebrews has Psalm 110 sort of running through it as a theme. And I just fell in love with that psalm and what it taught me and what it teaches people. So I thought, I'm going to put that in because David wrote it. And David, when he wrote it, he was a prophet. And this psalm has eternal significance for David, for Jesus, and for you and me. So let's look at it together and read it together. The word of God to my Lord. Sit alongside me here on my throne until I make your enemies a stool for your feet. You were forged a strong scepter by God of Zion. Now rule, though surrounded by enemies, your people will freely join you resplendent, oh dear, in holy armor, but sorry, on the great day of your conquest. Join you at the fresh break of day. Join you with all the vigor of youth. God gave his word and won't take it back. You're the permanent priest, the Melchizedek priest. The Lord stands true at your side, crushing kings in his terrible wrath bringing judgment on the nations, handing out convictions wholesale, crushing opposition across the wide earth. The kingmaker puts his king on the throne. The true king rules with head held high. And the reason that I chose the message for this is because verse 7, the kingmaker puts his king on the throne with uh, true king rules with head held high, is translated literally in other versions. And this, this is a metaphor for the Hebrews for what this says. So your other version might say something about drinking from the brook. But other translators agree with Eugene Peterson that this is the meaning of this last verse. So we are going to go with it. So as I'm studying this, and entering into the time of this song, which is God's eternal present, I am reminded of one of my famous, fa favorite promises in the Bible, which is 1 Peter 1, 4. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven, and the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. The day is coming when you'll have it all, life healed and whole. And I love that verse because I take this verse as God's promise for my own life, for my own, the own people that I pray for, my family um, and our nation. 
that there will be a time when life will be healed and whole. All right, let's look at verse 1. The word of God to my Lord, sit alongside me here on my throne until I make your enemies a stool for your feet. So our David, the David that we're studying, is also a prophet. The writers of the New Testament quote this psalm more than any other chapter in the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you where it is quoted. So the first time that it is quoted is... Uh, in Matthew. And Matthew uh, records Jesus having conversations with Pharisees and Sadducees, and they are trying to ask him questions that will trick him. And so he's patiently answering their questions, and the subtext is always eternity and resurrection, because some of those Pharisees and Sadducees did not believe in resurrection, and they didn't know who he was. And so what happens is that he quotes, has this dialogue. He sends this riddle back to them. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees said, because they knew Psalm 110, he's the son of David, our David. Jesus says, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, God-inspired, calls him Lord. For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This really shook them up. And it also is repeated in Mark and Luke. The next time this verse is quoted, Jesus is beginning his terrible trial on the night that he was betrayed. And he is taken in front of the Jewish leaders. And Caiaphas, the high priest, has asked him a question, and Jesus is silent. And Caiaphas is so angry. He says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. Here Jesus takes a passage from Daniel that talks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He takes Psalm 110.1, which talks about the Son of David. He puts them together, and he says, not only is he going to come in the clouds, but he is sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One in heaven. So this is the power of this psalm. And what I also love about this is here Jesus is facing this terrible death, this terrible trial. Right after he says this, the high priest rips his robes, and then they start slapping him and spitting on him and saying, prophesy who hit you. And it just goes downhill from there to the crucifixion. But what I love about this reference here that Jesus uses is that when he is suffering, we get to see what he's thinking. This is, he's taking the passages of scripture, the promises of God about himself, and he is thinking about it. And this is our pattern when we are suffering, to take the promises of God that apply to us 
and moment by moment by moment, hash them over in your mind, just like Jesus, because he is the one who shows us how to do this. Well, then he is crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, spends time with his disciples and friends, and then Mark says, after Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and what did he do? He sat at the right hand of God. Then we go into the disciples all waiting. They were told to wait. And then Pentecost comes, and the Holy Spirit comes on them. And Jerusalem is packed with Jews from all over the world speaking different languages. They can speak in their languages. The Jews are all, what's going on? And Peter starts preaching a sermon to them. And he talks about their ancestor David. And he says, for David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Well, the Jews who hear this are horrified and grieving. And the Bible goes on to say that 3,000 of them believed on that day. Paul's going to take this verse up in Romans 8. When he's talking about, are we condemned? No, he says, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This adds something else to what Jesus is doing while he's sitting at the right hand of God. He's praying for us that we will go through our suffering the same way he did, sticking with the word of God and orienting ourselves to God's time. All right. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. Then Paul says, the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom that he has created to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And this is the rest of our Psalm 110. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. For the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That enemy is not yet destroyed, and Jesus promises to destroy it. And when he destroys that, all will be delivered to his Father. All right. Uh, I, I, I just want to say hallelujah to all this, but I wish Alexis was here. Okay. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, that power, the power that God has given to you and me, is like the mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And what did he do? Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and every title that can be given. Now, Ladies, when you read the newspaper or watch the news, why don't we pray this prayer, right? Jesus, have power over all authority, power, dominion, and every title that can be given. Not only in the present age when we're living, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things where? Under his feet. 
and appointed him to be head over everything the church, which is his body, you and me, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now this is probably a good time to just remind you, in case some of you are finding, what is this putting under his feet? But this is a military victory metaphor. When someone was conquered, the conqueror would put his foot on their neck. And then it came to be known as kind of a metaphor for having them as the footstool. All right, we are moving along here. Ephesians, oh no, did I just do that one? Colossians 3.1. Since then, you and me, we have been raised with Christ. Where are we then? Sitting. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is how we should live. And now, what I was studying last summer in Hebrews, this, this author quotes this passage several times. Hebrews 1, 3. After he, Jesus, provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 8, 1. For we do have such a high priest, Jesus, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And then in Hebrews 10, 12 through 13. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because one sacrifice... By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's you and me. He's making us holy. That is not easy to do, but he's doing it. All right, and then my all-time favorite verse in the entire Bible, Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning and shame, and what did he do? Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. All right, let's go back to our first verse here. The word of God to my Lord, sit alongside me here on my throne until I make your enemies a stool for your feet. As we have been studying 1st and 2nd Samuel, we get to know the details of the external things in David's life. We are going to see him suffer. We are going to see him being persecuted, chased, hounded, threatened, people trying to murder him. So Psalm 110 shows us David's body and soul connection for the Trinity in his lifetime. So I like to think about our David sitting and he's worshiping and he hears God speaking to someone. God said to my Lord, he hears this and he says, what, what is he saying? And he hears him say, sit alongside me here on my throne until I make your enemies a stool for your feet. David clearly knows that this is not him because it's God saying to my Lord. So he knows it doesn't apply to him. And he's thinking, this, this, I must have entered into eternity here, and I'm hearing God talking to God. 
Jesus plainly says, as we have seen, that this message is about him. And so David is speaking by the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. David is dwelling in the eternal house of the Lord. I had some hot water. I just had bronchitis all of December. Oh, honey. <laughs> I call up Judah and I say, oh, honey. Oh, honey. Because I miss eight gigs. <coughs> anyway. I'm bitter. <clears throat> so David is dwelling when he is in this psalm, in the eternal present. There's no past. There's no future. It's only the mind of God. And he is sitting there hearing this because it's past and present and future. So... David loved sitting here in this house of God so much that in another place he's going to say, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than live anywhere else. So as we fly through time, we're going to see this. <clears throat> now naturally, the literary structure of these seven verses is a Hebrew chiasm, a poem that has structure. So we see the first verse and the seventh verse are echoes of each other. The second verse and the sixth verse echo each other. The third verse and the fifth verse echo each other. And the fourth verse is the center on which everything is a hinge. And of course, it's about God keeping his word forever and ever. Everything he says, he stands by, which is what we live by faith when we um, take God's promises, that that's what he means. So let's look at the beginning and the end. Verse 1 talks about an invitation into the eternal throne room to hear this dialogue. And verse 7 finishes the poem by being in the eternal throne room with the king as his head is held high. So this is what encompasses and encircles our poem today. All right, let's see. And I just, just to remind you that that verse 7 is best translated by Eugene Peterson. And other people agree with him. It's not just him. So let's look. We're going to look at parts of different parts of this now. Not the whole, but just the parts. So the first words we hear of this dialogue are words of intimacy, equality, and of military victory. So God the Father is speaking of a warfare. Jesus is in a battle. Jesus is invited to sit while the Father does the work. And as I said before, this enemies uh, under your feet is ultimate military victory. So we have to look at the enemies of Jesus. First of all, Satan is Jesus' enemy. Satan comes to him when he is tempted in the wilderness, and uh, Jesus defeats him with the word God. During, when, even when he was an infant, he tried to have him killed. At different times when he's walking through his ministry, he, Satan is trying to kill him. And then, on the cross, Satan thought he had killed him, and we're going to go into that more later. We also have enemies. The world, which is our culture, 
our own flesh, our own sinful natures, and Satan and his powers and dominions. And this song is going to say that when we are in Christ, we have victory over all of that. Jesus shows us how to fight our enemies by stepping out of our time into God's time, into the mind of God. So as we have read that Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death, so we will also experience that. So let's now go to verse 2. You were forged a strong scepter by God as I am. Now rule those surrounded by enemies. Jesus is going to rule even when he's surrounded by enemies. We, in Jesus, are effective even when we are surrounded by enemies because he was forged this strong scepter. And what is that forging? It's time in the Gospels when we read about Jesus' life and how he was forged. Hebrews 2.10 says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering and that Jesus is proud of us when we suffer in him and calls us his family. Our time, our time span, is our story of being forged. Now, if you are in God's time, then you are, you are going through suffering, clinging to God. Sometimes, and I have friends who have done this, who have stepped out of God's time and go through suffering or just live their lives, but it leads to nothing but pain and frustration. So I, when you encourage someone to step into God's time, then at least there is some semblance of victory. So, and then Romans 8 tells us when we are doing that, we're being conformed to God's image. All right, now Psalm 10.3 uh, turns to us. Your people will freely join you, resplendent in holy armor, on the great day of your conquest. Join you at the fresh break of day. Join you with all the vigor of youth. So I like to think of our young David. He wakes up in the morning and he's with his sheep and his father says, I want you to take this food to your brothers. So he goes to his brothers, he sees that this battle is going on with the Philistines and he hears Goliath and he says, he's God's enemy. I have victory over God's enemy because I know God and he has helped me in the past. So he starts talking like this and, and of course, People, they ridicule him and everything. But he is not trusting in his own armor or Saul's armor, but the armor that God dresses him with. And he also has the vigor of youth. So when David writes these verses that we have here, resplendent in your holy armor, and at the fresh break of day with the vigor of youth, I think he's saying, just like I was when I fought Goliath, I'm looking down centuries and centuries and seeing you. And you can be dressed in resplendent holy armor on the day of your conquest, at the fresh break of your day, and join you with all the vigor of youth. 
And what do you do? You do this of your free will. It's a choice that you make. Dressed in holy armor, Paul picks up in Ephesians 6. Dressed in God's clothing. And every day in time can be a day of victory. And every day is a new day. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, first, orient yourself to God's time. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then what does he do? He tells us, so first, orient yourself to God's time. But then, bring to God what you need this day. Your daily bread, forgiveness of your sins, forgiving other people, and then finally, protection from evil. Deliver us from evil. And when we do that, we are forever young. If Isaiah 40, 31 picks this up, even young people grow tired and weary, and the young stumble and fall, but those who open the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings of eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I have had the privilege with June and some others of walking alongside wonderful Christians as they are dying. Their bodies are old and decaying. But in their spirit and in their soul, God sees them as eternally young as they go through this last part of their story with him. Remember, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And when he looks on your heart and my heart, he sees us as eternally young. Do I hear a hallelujah? <laughs> okay. All right. Psalm 110.4. God gave his word and won't take it back through the permanent priest, the Melchizedek priest. Now, I know I mentioned the word, the name of Kizadek, and your eyes over. For some reason, he just puts everybody to sleep. But he's wonderful, and I'm going to show you why. <laughs> this Melchizedek person starts, he comes up in Genesis 14. So, who is he? What's he doing? The author of Hebrews picks us up, wants to talk about it, but he sees everybody's eyes glazing over. But I love Melchizedek. First of all, I love this story. Well, there's parts of it that aren't so nice. Lot and his family have moved towards Sodom and Gomorrah. While they're there, five kings, five kings, come along, attack them, capture them, take everything they have captive, they're going to be their slaves. Abraham, Hears about this. He's so upset. He gets 300 of his employees and friends, and they go after these five kings. Well, they get there and they defeat these five kings. They set Lot free, his family free, and everything that he owns that is free. So imagine Abraham. He's an old man. He's covered in sweat. He's traveled for miles. He probably hasn't eaten for days. And, and somebody comes to him, the king of Salem, or Jerusalem, the king of peace, dressed in these beautiful robes. His name happens to be Melchizedek. And he comes and he refreshes Abraham. 
with wine and bread. And when David says, you're a permanent priest, the Melchizedek priest, he is saying, Jesus Christ is like Melchizedek. He will refresh you. He will bring you everything you need. And he himself picked up the symbols of bread and wine and said, this is my body given for you for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth my death, burial, and resurrection until I come again. This is what Melchizedek does. He refreshes you. He encourages you to think in God's time. I'm not even going to go to whether he had a beginning or an end and all of that. Because the important thing here is that this is the type of person that Jesus was. And this is the type of person that you and I are called to be because we are Christ's body on earth. Our calling is to bring God's refreshment to people who need it. And Abraham needed it. He was probably way out of serotonin. Now, I get out of serotonin. Tuesdays are usually my days to be out of serotonin. I get here, sometimes things go wrong, and then afterwards, June and I, we might have a rehearsal with the band, and then later that night, we have another rehearsal for the church room, our grail. So I'm here till 10.30 at night. Now, if I get an email that pokes me, or if somebody I love says something that irritates me, I take it wrong, and I feel terrible about myself, I feel like nobody understood what I was teaching today. It's just awful, and I have learned never, never to plan a divorce on Tuesday. <laughs> so I need, and we all need, when we go through trials, people to refresh us. That's what your tables are for to get together. Somebody is suffering terrible, terribly, and you are there to refresh. Remind them of God's eternal time and his encouragement for you. And be Jesus bringing refreshment to that person. And this particular verse is right there, verse 4, in the center of everything. It holds this whole psalm together. It, God's promise holds you and me together. This is the most important thing that, that we are to be Melchizedek, as Jesus was Melchizedek. All right, let's continue on. Verse 5. The Lord stands true at your side, crushing kings in his terrible wrath. Now, in uh, 1 Samuel 17, when Kristen had us look at David and Goliath, David has entered the throne of heaven. And he, when he's talking to these people, he's thinking backwards, this is what God has done for me. And forwards, this is what God is going to do. And that moment with David and Goliath is defined by eternity. Verse 6, bringing judgment on the nations, handing out convictions wholesale, crushing opposition across the wide earth. This is what Jesus did on the cross. And this is what he continues to do. Crushing, bringing judgment, handing out convictions, 
crushing opposition. Now, Paul, when we studied Colossians last year, says in 2.14 and 15, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. This is a reference to that sign that Pilate had nailed to the cross that said, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, in Latin, in Hebrew, and in Aramaic, the language of the highest government that the world had ever seen, Rome. And in Hebrew, the language of the highest and most complex religion the world had ever known, and Aramaic, the people, all nailed to the cross of Jesus. Having disarmed the powers that verse 110 talks about, authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. N.T. Wright says that the powers, Rome, the highest religion of the world, the Jewish scholars, angry at his challenge to their authority, stripped him naked, held him up to public contempt, and celebrated a triumph over him. Now, who won? The great paradox of the cross is that God was stripping them naked, holding them up to public contempt, and leading them in his own triumphal procession to be put under the foot of Jesus, his son of David. Jesus triumphed over these powers, these political powers, the religious powers, their abuse. He exposed them for what they were, usurpers of his authority. This is all in Psalm 110. Therefore, we are welcomed into his family, his authority, his power over evil. Deliver us from evil, he says to pray. And then we have, because of him, a distinction in our politics, in our prejudices, in our superstitions, in the fact that male and female now are equal in Christ. Verse 7. The kingmaker puts his king on the throne. The true king rules with head held high. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our king, David's king, is on this throne for eternity. We are all invited in, all our past, all our present, and all our future our moment-by-moment moment lifetime. God revealed this to David, and David put it to music. We are called into this battle, this daily fight, and we are part of this battle until Jesus takes his kingdom and gives it back to his Father, and the last enemy destroyed is death. We are called to be dressed in his holy armor. We are called to be Melchizedek, dressed in robes of peace to bring refreshment. We are conformed to the image of God's Son, and we will be active even when we sit. So let's just review what we have learned today. One, Jesus sat down. Two, we are invited to sit with him. Three, God revealed this to David, and David put it to music. Four, 
Our free will may choose to be a warrior with Jesus, dressed in his holy armor. Five, we are called to be Melchizedek, dressed in robes of peace, bringing refreshment. And six, when we suffer, we are being forged into the image of Jesus. And God's promise is that he will always take care of us. Now you know that I like to bring music to you. And I, I, I looked everywhere. If you can think of something that has something about God and eternity and all of these promises, let me know. But I did find one, and this is a song by Fernando Ortega, Lord of Eternity. Have any of you ever heard of this one? Precious few, so you're going to love it if I can get it to work. So I'm just going to go over the words of the song because I can't play it and have you see it at the same time. So all you're going to do is hear it. And I want you to kind of close your eyes, listen to the words, and sort of pray them. So these are the words. And every single line is taken from the Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks in your favor, who loves all your words and hides them like treasure. In the darkest place of his desperate heart, they are a light, a strong, sure light. Sometimes, I call out your name, but I cannot find you. I look for your face, but you are not there. By my sorrows, Lord, lift me to you. Lift me up to your side. Lord of eternity, Father of mercy, look on my fainting soul. Keeper of all the stars, friend of the poorest heart, touch me and make me whole. If you are my defender, who's against me? No one can trouble or harm me if you are my strength. All I ask, all I desire, is to live in your house all my days. Okay, this might take me a minute to figure out how to do this.
Thank you so much that you are the Lord of eternity, that we can live in your house all our days, that you provide for everything we need moment by moment, and that we can do this with joy set before us, as you did when you endured the cross, because you sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and you are king, and you have triumphed over all our enemies. So we thank you in your victorious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. 